Well, good morning, Mercy Road. Hey, it is great to be here this morning. Um, one of the things that I just get really encouraged with is to realize that across the Twin Cities this morning, there are churches, believers, gathered in worship, praising your God. And one day, we are going to join together in heaven. I don't know, it just is so encouraging me to see all of you this morning, to see that you've been worshiping here for a long time. When I'm away, you're here. There's churches across the cities all doing this in unison. I hope that the message this morning is encouraging to you. Um, a little bit about me, yeah, so I'm Noah. I live in Roseville. I work at Eagle Brook Church, like Mike said. Uh, fun fact, I used to live in Dallas very briefly, so we'll see if a Texas accent comes out. I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, so that's where I was there. I am married to my lovely wife, Jenny. I told her I wouldn't call her out, but that is her over there in the front row. So. <laughs> hey, so Mike shared with me that you guys are doing a series on 1 John, uh, but you're taking little breaks along the way to cover some psalms. And so this morning I wanted to introduce to us a psalm, um, but the psalm that I'm talking about brings up a really hard topic. It's a topic that a lot of Christians struggle with today, and it's a topic that our world simply finds unbelievable. It is that stumbling block to why have faith in God. Now I met somebody who was struggling with this. Uh, it was on a trip to Minnesota. I was visiting from Dallas. I had some friends who had invited me out to dinner, and while I was there, I met this young couple who was newly engaged. Now, one of the things as a pastor uh, that I try to never do is tell people that I am a pastor, <laughs> right? So we're there, and I'm doing everything I can to avoid it, but eventually people ask, you know, what do you do? And, and word comes out, right? So sure enough, I'm a pastor. And as we're going along, I, you know, said something probably along the lines of, man, I'm really thankful for what the Lord is doing in my life. Little did I know that I was stepping on a landmine. You see, this young woman and the, of the couple, she kind of looked, and not in phase, you know, most people right after you share you're a pastor, they kind of go, oh, oh, sorry about what I just said. They apologize for the language. They try to act all polite. She wasn't really phased at all. And when I said those words that I'm thankful for the Lord's doing, she said, yeah, we used to believe that too. Hmm. It kind of hit a sour chord. She said it in a way that almost made you feel foolish for believing in that. And of course, I couldn't help but ask a little bit further and go, okay, well, uh, is there a little bit more to that? Do you have anything else to share? And she's going, yeah. You know, I, I grew up going to the church, I grew up believing, but then I became an adult. Then I became an adult and entered into the real world. Hmm. Now, I couldn't just leave it there, right? Of course, I have to pry a little bit more. I'm like, well, is there something that specifically led you to that conclusion? Now, this is another landmine that I'm stepping on here. My brother died. My brother had cancer. We went to the priest, we prayed, we fasted, we prayed, and we prayed, and he's dead. My brother's dead. That's what's real. And that's heavy. See, this topic that she's wrestling with, where is God in this moment? Now, what I wanted to do, right, the cynic in me, the pragmatist, I wanted to respond and be like, 
Now, wait a second. People die every day. They've been dying for a really long time. So you're telling me that you were willing to have this faith so long as, you know, you could see other people. They might have prayed, but the reason their prayers weren't answered is because maybe they didn't pray hard enough or maybe they weren't good enough, or maybe God didn't love them, but you, on the day that you needed God, you know, your prayer would be heard, that as long as everything goes right for you, you are willing to believe in the Lord. And as soon as it does it, you've lost hope, you've lost faith. Now, part of me wanted to respond that way, but I think we can all imagine just about how well that would have been had I responded that way. Right? She's dealing with something much, much deeper, something deeper inside of where are you, God, when I needed you most? What was the point of me having this faith, of praying and going to you, if at the end of the day, you weren't there for me? Now, one of the things Mike uh, told me to do, he said, Noah, from the pulpit, I'm always sharing army stories, and I feel like people... Oh, oh there we go. And so, with that, uh, he's like, you should share an army story. So, here you go. I met another person who was dealing with this topic, but in an even deeper sense, he really brought it out. I was a young lieutenant in the Army, newly commissioned, uh, and I was on to, with my unit, our first annual training. And it was out in Fort McCoy, which is in Wisconsin, is about a two and a half hour drive uh, from the Twin Cities. And on their way there, I was paired with our first sergeant. Uh, now, one thing you need to know is I was only about 22 years old. This guy had been in the Army longer than I had been alive. Now, on this road trip, we're going, and somehow, you know, the conversation goes where I ask him, like, hey, do you have any sort of faith background? And he kind of chuckles. This one's a little bit of a friendlier response, but he chuckles and goes, Lieutenant, I've been alive way too long to believe in that nonsense. And I couldn't help, you know, like, okay, well, you're telling me that you've never even pondered, you never even thought about maybe there was possibly a God. But when I, when I asked that question, you see the tone changed. You see his brow darken, and he looked over and said, listen, I've been on multiple deployments. You go to Afghanistan. You see those bodies. You smell the smell, hear those screams, and you tell me, that there is a God. I've seen the whole world, and there isn't a God in it. Man, when we deal with those issues of where is God, it's so hard because we've all been there. At some point, we've felt that before. Rarely, you know, theologians have been asking this question of the problem of evil for a long time. And those who are trying to answer it, most of the times we try to do it at a time where it's personal. It's not just some theological question we're pondering. We're going through something deep in our lives, right? For some of us, it's when that doctor comes back with those MRI scans, and he says that word, cancer. For some of us, it's when we're at the dinner table, and that spouse mentions those words, divorce. It's when you're on six months of unemployment, and there's not a job prospect it's when you learn that your kid is going to be born with a, some sort of deficiency, some sort of defect. We've all had this point. It doesn't take long in this life to come to a point where you're questioning, can there be a God with all this evil in the world? And where is he when I need him most? You know, it's at these times in our life when we're struggling with this question of where is God? 
that the world is quick to mock. I remember uh, early on in COVID, at this point, there's government restrictions being issued. People are staying indoors. There's word of a vaccine, but it's very early on. And in it, uh, the governor of New York, Andrew Sumo, uh, was up there, and he was giving a press conference. And he said these words. I wanted to share them with you. He says, in reference to the daily COVID cases, he says, in quote, the number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. It's what the world finds unbelievable about God. It's when there's challenges and he's not showing up. When Christians are praying and it seems as if they're not being heard. And what do we do in those moments when we're asking those questions? Well, we can look to our future, right? We know that Christ has secured it up in heaven and we can trust him. But even then, we're looking to the future, but it's not answering a question about right here and right now. You might hear someone look at Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And that sounds good and we're listening to it, but when we look at our situation, when I look at the situation and I go, what I have right here is not good. There's nothing about this that's good. And our voice echoes the voice of that, that girl that I talked to, that, that young woman I met. That my brother is still dead. That's what we feel in those moments. And the reality is, is that it's tough, that it isn't very good. And it's hard to answer those questions when we're there in the moment. Now, I started to ponder this. And I asked some other pastors, I was in a car ride with pastors, and if you haven't learned anything yet, it's that if you're in a car ride with a pastor for too long, it can get dangerous, right? So I started asking these, these pastors, the three of us total, I'm like, hey, how do you help people in those moments? When you have somebody who's coming to you and they're going through this deep struggle where they're asking, where is God in their life? How is it that you help them? And we talked for about 30 minutes, conversations going back and forth, and one of the uh, pastors finally said, he said, sometimes I go to Psalm 29, or sorry, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but those that are revealed belong to us. And his point being is sometimes you never get the response as to why. Sometimes you'll never know why, and you have to sit in there and still trust the Lord. And it's hard because as I ponder that why question, you know, I try to think through uh, a fun one is, is what would you do if you were God for a day? My response initially is, is, well, you know what I would do is I'd heal all the sickness and all the pain. I'd heal all of it in a single day. And I think there would be rejoicing, families would be excited. You know what would be interesting is, is the next day. Because now suddenly thousands, millions of people have lost their jobs. Health workers, doctors, unemployed. Now, is simply them losing their job worth healing everybody? Yeah, it'd still probably heal everybody. Eventually they'll get jobs. But maybe there's even more. You know, these health workers that go to work, they develop this thing in their hearts called empathy, called compassion. And what's interesting is, is then they go back and they take that to their families. They take it to our communities, our school, and they're a part of it. And that is a part of our society. It's what makes up our fabric. Now, am I saying that's why God allows this? No, right? I'm saying that even in my limited human understanding, I can say that maybe in the question of why, there's more that meets the eye. But even if you do, did know the response as to why, 
Why in your moment was this happening to you? Do you really think that it would solve the problem? Do you really think that you would be satisfied? I don't think that's the question that ultimately you would be okay with. Getting the response of why doesn't solve the fact that there's still this tumor in my side and it's growing and it's not stopping. I'm still going to die. The question that I'm wrestling with is, where are you, God, right here, right now? You might tell me all the good that's going to come from this, but I am still looking like I'm going to die. Where are you? That's the question that we're pondering. That's the question that we're, that we're wrestling with. Now, as a chaplain, I'm exposed, right? I'm not an expert in any religion, uh, but I am exposed to a lot of them. And in that, I began to ponder this question of, is there possibly a God out there who really does understand what it's like? Is there possibly a God who's out there who can answer that problem of evil that we have, the why question and really the where are you God? In looking at all gods that man has named, I started looking through, and is there one that would possibly put himself at risk, that would come off his throne and answer what it is like to be human? Well, the closest thing I could find was there being a God who's still on his throne, would wave out his hand, and grant the prayer requests of those below him. That's the closest I could get in all the religions as a chaplain as I looked. Now, some of you can start to get, maybe you're picturing where I'm going with this. Maybe you can see the answer that I'm about to drive towards. But in these moments of suffering, in these moments of pain, you have your blinders on. And it's not easy to get an answer as to where is God in your life, and is there a God who possibly could understand you? That light bulb didn't come on into, for me until I was working as a hospital chaplain in Dallas. And I was visiting rooms, and finally I walked into this one room, and there's this man sitting there on this bed. He's sitting on the edge of the bed, and in it lies his seven-year-old son. His son's sleeping. And I walk in, I talk to the man, and I said, hey, what brings you here this morning? He says, well, today I found out that my son's cancer is getting worse. It's spreading, and he only has two months to live. You can imagine how heavy the air was in the room. How do you respond to that? His words went something like this. My son is so young. He's so innocent. He doesn't deserve this. Is there anybody who actually understands what it's like to be a dad and watch your son die? That's what he's wrestling with. And finally, the light bulb clicked. Is there a God that knows what it's like to lose their son? My friends, there is. There is a God who has answered the call, who is willing to come off the throne, to not sit secure in heaven on his throne, but became a man wrapped in human flesh, capable of being bruised and broken and wounded. And he came preaching his son, Jesus, sent here to die for us. Right, he gave us his son in exchange for his own love. It's amazing to think that we have a God who became vulnerable, who came and answered the call of our questions of evil, and he did so in a way that cost him greatly. This morning, it's going to be up here. Um, you'll see it on the screen. But I want to read to you a very section that it was like for Jesus to go uh, and what his life was like to be hung on the cross. I'm going to read it, and this section is from the Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and a section of John. So it's a little bit composed, and 
I'm going to read it to you here now. And I want you to pay attention to it because we're going to swing back to it. It says, Then the governor's soldiers led him away to crucify him. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they oaked a sponge in it and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. I can't imagine what it's like to be a father and watch your son go through something like this. Now, for those of you who have read the gospel accounts, you realize that I've left out quite a bit. Right? I haven't included the nails that pierced his hands and feet. I haven't included the floggings that he received from the Roman soldiers. I haven't included the whips that were made with straps of metal and glass slung across his back. I have included the th crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. There is so much more to this story. And I can't imagine what it would be like to look and watch any man experience something like this. But it would be absolutely unimaginable to watch your own son experience that. Now, what I just read to you, you might be surprised that it's not what I read to that man who was watching his son die. You see, there's another passage that, though this one captures what it was like to be God watching his son on the cross, there's a passage that I believe is so much more powerful when it comes to understanding what it was that Jesus felt when he was on the cross. Now, before I turn to this passage, and you might be guessing what it is, I want you to think critically about it because this passage is extremely valuable. You see, it gives us a reason for to trust that Jesus said who he was, who he was that being the Son of God. How do I know that Jesus' claim is true? Well, this passage reveals that to us. You see, this passage is written, and it includes what we call prophecy. Something that was written about God, that God said would come true, and then later would come true. You know, in the world today, it talks about faith and it mocks faith. But that's because the world's definition of faith is typically wishful thinking. Believing in something that you know isn't true, and yet wanting it anyways. That's the world's definition of faith. But you know, the Bible's definition of faith is very different than that. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Always be ready to give a defense for anyone asking for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, the Bible is asking for us to have a reason for the faith that we have. It's saying that you need to know why it is that you believe. And that when pain and suffering come your way, and emotions are here and they're overwhelming you, that you can go back to the very reasons that you believe. This psalm that I'm about to read to you was written over a thousand years before Christ. And when we put it up on here, you're going to see certain underlines, right? And actually what it is, is it's in your bulletin. So if you've got a bulletin, you can go to the very back of it. The psalm I'm telling you about is Psalm 22. And what's amazing is, is those underlines that you see, they should sound extremely familiar to you. 
because they run parallel to the passage that I read earlier to you, which was from the Gospels. Here is a passage written a thousand years before that parallels and predicts exactly what would happen to Jesus. My hope is, is I'm going to read through this with you. And as we go through Psalm 22, I hope that you see your doubts, your fears, your anxieties, your feeling of abandonment and hopes of suffering on the hearts and lips of Jesus himself. So let's go ahead and we're going to turn there now. This is Psalm 22. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. Listen, Jesus' complaint here is very personal. He's not talking to a God he doesn't know off in the clouds. He's talking to a God he knew before the beginning of the world, the God who was his very father. And he's saying, you are my God. You are the one who bore me. And yet, where are you? I've been crying out what it seems like night and day. You're always on my mind. And yet, in this moment when I need you most, where are you, God? Have you ever felt that way? In that moment? Created by God in his image. He says he knows each and every one of us. He knows our hearts, our minds. He's counted the number of hairs in our head. And in our suffering, this God that we call our God, where is he? Let's go to verses 4 and 5. I'm skipping 3. It says, in, your ancestor, in our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. One of the worst feelings that you can feel is feeling that of injustice and unfairness. Jesus here is going, there were those who came before me, and when they were suffering, when they were in pain, when they asked the question, where God, and they prayed to you, you answered them, you delivered them, you granted their wishes, and yet why not me? Why not me right now? I think of him in the garden praying the night before, sweating literal drops of blood, asking God if there's any other way. Why this one? I'm imagining that some of us have been in that boat. The boat where we're asking those questions, why and where? Why is it that somebody else gets those prayers answered? Why not me? I've seen it. Have you forgotten me? Have you not heard me? Am I not good enough? What is it about me that refuses for you to answer me? I'm going to jump to verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. At this point, Jesus is already pinned to the cross. The nails are in his hands and feet. He's bled so much that there's no coming back from this. And seeing that Jesus was going to meet his end, his enemies had the goal, if you will, to walk up and mock him. Say, Jesus, you could heal so many. You can't heal yourself. You claim to be the Son of God. I'll believe you. Come off that cross. If you're the Son of God and he loves you so much, where is he right now? These are heavy. These are heavy emotions that Jesus is expressing. He's getting mocked for his very faith, his very trust in the Lord. And I can only imagine what it's like to have God up there listening to his cries and having people mock him because he trusts in God. 
That's our feelings when we're trusting in the Lord and he's not answering. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breasts. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Jesus is going, am I not your son? On the day of my birth there was angels rejoicing, singing in heaven. You brought gifts from afar. There was a light in heaven shining down. We celebrated my birth. You brought me by the Virgin Mary. Am I not special to you? And that's the very way that we feel. Our God, who knows us, everything about us, and we're wondering, where is he? I'm going to verses 11 through 15. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, roaring lions that tear their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Hey, there is this painting that I've seen. And it haunts me to this day. It's a painting of a Roman Colosseum. And in it are members from the early church. They're tied to a post. And the Romans were known for releasing wild animals and letting them devour Christians for the sake of entertainment for those who would attend. I could only imagine what it's like to see a lion coming at me, tied to a post, realizing I can't get away, and to feel its teeth sink into me, to rip my skin and my flesh from my bones, not just once, but again and again, and to know that it would continue until I was no more. I can't think of anything like it, except maybe a whip with glass and metal tied to it, running across my back, again and again and again. What David, as he's penning the Psalms, meant to be figurative, Jesus experienced literally. Jesus, having lost so much blood, it's no shock that he was dehydrated and said, I thirst. I'm going to read the last section to you, verses 16 through 18. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Is it not amazing that this was written almost a thousand years before Christ? And yet the accuracy and details in which it describes his life and ultimately his crucifixion. As you see it here, dogs in Israel were not considered your, you know, your white puffy poodles that come. Instead, they were considered to be scavengers, those who would only pick at things that were already dead. What Jesus is saying here is, is that I am pinned to the cross. It's as if I'm already going to die. I've lost so much blood that there's nothing that is going to bring me back from this. And as he hangs there, the soldiers look. And like dogs, even though Jesus' heart is still beating, they see him as being already dead. And what do they do? They pick for the scraps. They throw lots for what's left of him, his clothing, realizing that there's no way he would ever fill it again. Friends, as I read the words of Jesus to you, it is so hard. I can't even imagine what it was like to be there that day. Not just to be Jesus, but to watch him. Being with anybody who's going through moments of suffering like this, 
are hard. Going through moments where we're asking really hard questions, we feel abandoned, we feel forgotten, we feel left by the very God who said that he loves us. Our friends, in these moments, it is not easy to trust in the Lord. But, friends, we have an answer. In those moments of suffering, one of the most frustrating things would be somebody coming to you whose life has looked perfect. Everything that they ever wanted has gone their way. They got the house, the cars, the family, health, everything that they ever wanted, they have. And you and your suffering, they come to you, and they go, I understand what you're going through. No, you don't. Look at your life. Do you see me right now? There's nothing that you understand about this. It's one of the most frustrating things ever. Another frustrating thing is somebody who doesn't understand the situation and doesn't have an answer to it, neither it be medical expertise or finances. They have no way of really helping you. And they pat you on the shoulder and they say, it's going to be okay. My friends, though they don't have answers, and though those are the way that we feel, we do have a God who does know. We do have a God who's demonstrated that he understands. His name is Jesus. And of all the gods that there are, only one came off the throne. Only one came and experienced what we experience and answered the call to human suffering and evil. He took on flesh. He was wounded for our transgressions. He took our place that anyone who might have faith in him could have everlasting life. But more than just a God who understands, he is a God who has the power to save. And he demonstrated it because he rose in three days. The king could not be contained. He came out of the grave. He walked again and proclaimed that he has conquered death. But in his power, there's more. You see, in this, he demonstrated that he has the unique ability to take something that seems evil, something that the enemy has made for evil, and he can turn it to good. Listen, the, what was the enemy's greatest weapon? It was death itself. And Jesus, having been wounded by the enemy's weapon, took the very thing that was meant to be his end, and out of it he fashioned life. Not just for himself, but an answer for life to anybody who would believe in him. That's who our God is. In your moment, you might be saying to yourself, there is no way that out of this God can make anything possibly good. Look at my situation. There's nothing about this tumor in my side that could possibly be good. Friends, the day that Jesus was crucified, there was nothing good. His disciples had left everything behind, their lives, their occupations, their family, to follow Jesus. He was the one that could heal any sickness. He could feed anybody by making money, air, appear out of thin air. He had all the answers, and yet there his body lay on the cross. There was nobody who knew what was coming next. There was nobody in that moment who thought there was possibly anything good. But nobody knew what Jesus had in mind. In your life right now, you don't know what's coming next. For those of you who are going through suffering, and you're wondering, could there possibly be anything good? Could he possibly have the power to understand me, the power to save me, and make something from this? My friends, he does. If you're in that moment right now, and you've never put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to put your faith in him. Have a relationship with the only God who knows what it is that you're going through, who can relate to you. If you are a Christian in that moment, trust him. I'm going to close in prayer, but as I do, I'm going to invite the band to come up and join us. My God, to hear the words, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? To feel you as a personal God, to have a relationship with you, and in these moments where we're questioning, where is our God? Have these moments where we're wondering, where could you possibly be in my moment where I need you most? What is the point of this faith? For God, to realize that you didn't sit back and watch from afar. God, that you know me. You know what I'm going through. You felt it yourself. God, and you have this ability to take what I'm going through and turn it to good. God, we here this morning at Mercy, God, we give you our lives. We give you these moments where we're asking these questions and we're trusting you. We're trusting you with our futures. And we lift this up to you and we ask these things in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.